0: Good morning, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, we're going to be in there, and Isaiah chapter 9 as well, uh, we're going to be beginning, beginning a new sermon series in uh, for the season of Advent, focusing on the names of Jesus revealed here in Isaiah chapter 9, and so uh, welcome everyone, hope you're good, uh, turkey hangovers, we okay, we're doing alright, come here a little slow. A little sluggish, uh, but we're glad we're here together. I know uh, this Sunday can be a little light with the holidays and everything, but we're really glad that you're here this morning. So I'm going to read that, that text. I'm just going to read the last verse of chapter 8, and then read up to uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 7, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll jump into our uh, message this morning. Isaiah chapter 8, I'll start in verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, page 573 or on the screen. <clears throat> And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, and the former time brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Father, we... We come to you with our minds and our hearts probably filled with busyness and anxiety and things to do. And as we enter into this season of Advent, as we enter into this season of Christmas with with parties and eggnog and presents and um, times with family and friends, all good things from you, God. We just pray now that we could focus our attention, focus our hearts, focus our lives on these four particular names of Jesus. These names that reveal, God, who you are, what you've done, what you've accomplished, what you're like, how you work. That, that even in the busyness of, of this time, even in, in maybe even a, a post-Thanksgiving hangover of just pain of family and separation and struggle and sorrow and loss, that we could find the grace and the mercy and joys and love of Jesus and his hope to be enough for us during this season. So we just offer the, these weeks to you, we offer this time to you, we offer your word to us that you would teach us and guide us by your spirit. Illuminate our hearts and minds to hear and receive what you want to say to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've, I have mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and it, depending on your tradition or maybe you have no tradition or a church background, that means nothing to you, but it's the first Sunday. Leading up to the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And and so it's a, a time that we've always kind of celebrated as a church. Not that we always follow the, the Christian calendar to a T, but it's a it's an important time to kind of focus our attention for these few weeks on the coming of Christ. That Christ has come into the world. Obviously it's easy to forget that uh, during Christmas and, and Santa Claus and gifts and all those things and, and they're all good gifts. Um, uh, from God, but but these these weeks we're going to spend some time looking at these particular names of Jesus that were revealed to us 700 years before Jesus ever uh, walked uh, the earth. And I know as a pastor, and this doesn't affect you all that much, but pastors think about weird things like calendars and Sundays and Advent and... and church calendars and things like that. But one of the, the worst, I think, the, the worst Sundays for Advent to fall is the Thanksgiving weekend uh, uh, when it starts on that weekend. It doesn't always start on that weekend. Uh, and I used to really hate that because um, you know, a lot of people are gone and, and people are kind of recovering from Black Friday and Thanksgiving and, and too much football and too much turkey or, or whatever's going on in your life. But I begin to think over the years that, that actually it's a very beautiful, almost perfect picture of what Christmas is. Because Christmas is about this God who comes unexpectedly, comes into this chaotic, dark, kind of disoriented world where we're going to even see in Isaiah's text, but if you go to you know, the New Testament and you see the story of Jesus, he comes into this world where, where things are dark and things are hopeless and religiously and economically and, and politically, and, and, and yet comes in a very unexpected way, in a way that no one thought he would ever come. And it's just like us, right? That's how grace works. Grace works on us that way because it comes in unexpected ways. It's not something we thought up. It's not something that we, we, we fully understand, but it comes kind of through the back door. And that's exactly how Jesus came into uh, the world. Maybe you're recovering from you know Uncle Larry talking about politics over a uh, turkey dinner. Uh, anybody? Um, uncle Larry is just my metaphorical uh, uncle, but we all have an Uncle Larry, Right? It just wants to make things like really, really awkward around you know the turkey. It's like, I don't understand, pass the cranberries, let's talk politics. I don't understand how we made that leap. Um, but wherever we are this morning, the Christmas story is about coming to people who are disoriented, coming to us to bring us hope and salvation and life. And, and, and I think often what happens during the Christmas time is that we make Christmas into this very much a, a kind of peace and goodwill for all men. And, and we, we kind of rub off the hard edges of the actual story, right? If you're familiar with the Christmas story, it's, it's, it's not one of, oh, here's Jesus, yay, everything's great. It's actually, here's Jesus and his family running from Herod uh, to Egypt as they're about to get slaughtered and all the other babies, right? Merry Christmas. Um, we, we forget that part of the, the hard edges of Christmas, that God comes into chaos. God comes into darkness uh, to bring uh, light to us. And, and, and that's really good news, I think, as we, we kind of sit with that for these next few weeks. And I want to encourage you, these next few weeks during Advent, is, is this, these are not going to be kind of like go and do sermons, uh, not that they always are, but, but just this more of a come and sit sermons come and think, come and meditate on, come and reflect on how good and wonderful and gracious and loving and kind Jesus really is to us. And that's what we're going to see in the, these names is that, that, I, that I want us just to kind of slow down because I know things are going to ramp up for most of us in, in many ways. There's going to be office parties. There's going to be things with the kids. There's going to be exchange of gifts. There's going to be swiping a lot of credit cards, um, eating a lot of junk food, whatever, whatever it is. But, but to really sit and think on this jesus who has come to us who who has lived for us who has died for us who's raised for us who is coming again and so advent is about expectation and hope because christ will ultimately one day uh, come again and so so if we look at our text in isaiah um, i picked up uh, the last part of chapter eight and we're going to read part of uh, chapter seven or look at part of chapter uh, excuse me nine one to seven uh, but, but in chapter 8, it's exactly what we just said, that this is kind of disoriented time for the people of Israel, that, that, that there's this temptation. The Assyrians have kind of overtaken their people, and the Assyrians aren't people that worship Yahweh. They don't worship the true God. And the warning there from Isaiah is to say, just be careful. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of mixed signals and mixed messages. Don't fall into what their prophets are saying. Don't fall into the mixed messages of what the world says is where true hope is found but rather fix your gaze ultimately uh, on the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Emmanuel, uh, Isaiah 7, the God with us. And that's why in, in 22 it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Why? Because they're not following their God. They're not worshiping their God. They're not listening to their God who has all the wisdom in the universe in his hands. But they've been tricked They've been duped. They've been, been shown a different way and, and thought this is where life is. You know, it's power and it's money and it's success. But they're saying, no, no, no. He says, follow this, this Messiah where there's love and joy and salvation and hope. And so these, the, this coming of Jesus is a clash of wisdom. It's a clash of, of how we live our lives and, and where true life is found. If you remember in, uh, in Jesus' public ministry, the way he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 kind of gives us a little picture of what Jesus was kind of walking into. And in Matthew chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. And by the way, I'm going to quote a lot of verses this morning. So uh, if you feel like you're getting lost, just email me. I'll send you all the text. I don't want you to get lost, but if there are some texts that you miss, just let me know. Uh, but Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Gal- uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so even Jesus in his public ministry, he says, I've come to bring light into darkness. We could also say, I've come to bring wisdom where there is no wisdom. Because think about what light does, right? When you flip on the light in a room, it's dark. It's kind of disorienting. You're not sure where to go. You bump into something, right? Anybody stub their toe in the middle of the night? Um, it's the worst pain ever under heaven. I'm so glad for heaven when there's no more stubbing of toes. Um, or if you're like me and you have three boys and Legos, um, Legos tend to embed deep in the flesh. Um, and it's the worst pain ever created. Um, sorry, ladies. I know you're giving birth. Okay, maybe it's not the same, but but he's, when you flip on the lights, there's there's a wisdom, there's a, a light that has dawned to say, hey, come come follow this path. Come and follow me, where all wisdom is found. That that's essentially what Jesus do. His salvation isn't just to save us from our sins, which is not minimizing that at all. It's that and so much more. But to say, I've also given you a way to live, a, a path, a wisdom that is better than any wisdom that the world could ever offer you. And so when Jesus begins his public ministry, he says there's a light that has come. There's a wisdom that has come. That's why I am the wonderful counselor. Now, what I love, I've read this text many, many times in my my short life, but notice the way chapter 9 in Isaiah begins. It says there's this darkness that has come. Don't follow the the rulers of the world. Don't follow their wisdom. But there's a light that has dawned. Notice what he says. But There will be no gloom for her who was in English. This is all grace. This is is almost Ephesians 2. Even though we walk in sin, even though we're separated from God, even though though everything that we do is is, is built on and predicated on not listening to God, not loving God, not serving God, but God has come to us. God has made us alive in Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 says. So, so in the same way, there's this little little gospel moment in chapter 9. to say, hey, I know the world's dark. I know things are disoriented. I know Uncle Larry has lost his mind. But I'm with you. But I've come to you. But I'm going to protect you from your enemies. Notice in verse 4 and 5 and 6, the, the word for there. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his 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 kingdom. This, this Messiah, to bring light to all he's come to bring joy to all this word that he uses of yoke it's the same word that jesus uses this put on this yoke that is easy this burden that is light don't put on the yoke of religion that says you have to do something to earn god's favor don't put on the the, the yoke of performance or power or riches that are just going to burn in a heap someday Put on the bird the the yoke of Jesus. Learn from him. He's humble and he's gentle. He will guide you. He will lead you. He will give you life. Life. He will give you hope. He will give you joy. This fort, he's going to stop all the. enemies. He's going to take the weight of and all the rule of government upon himself, and he will be the Emmanuel, the God with us. He will be a King of presence, a God who desires to dwell with his. People. I know things are dark, but I've come to bring light. I know things are disoriented, but I've come to light your path and bring wisdom. And so for these next uh, few weeks, as I've mentioned, we're going to look at these four names of this Messiah, Jesus, that's been revealed in, in Isaiah 9. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this morning, we're going to just look for a few moments. We're going to meditate on this idea that Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor. Like, what, what in the world does that mean? I, I don't know if you're like me, if, if you really think of, there's all these different names that Jesus has given in the Old Testament, obviously in the New Testament, but often we don't think of these four. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't think of Jesus being this this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet that's what Isaiah says 700 years before Jesus walked there. He says, this is who this God is. This is what he's like. This is what he does so. Let's look at that for a minute, and I'm going to actually attack this backwards. I'm going to look at first counselor and then wonderful, because I think the wonderful is actually the application of the message, as we'll see in a few moments here. So, so just wonderful counselor, just in broad broad strokes. It's th- this idea of wonderful is is, is probably not a, a word we use all the time, but it's something that's so amazing. And in, in the Hebrew, it actually means something that's supernatural. It's mysterious. It's hard to comprehend. That, that something could be so wonderful it's not the equivalent of you know going to the the nelson and looking at i don't think they have a mona lisa but if they did or you, i guess you could go to the louvre in in france and just say this is a wonderful piece of art it's well beyond that it's supernatural it's our little brains our little three pound sinful brains can't fully comprehend who this god is and, and who, what he's like and what he's done it's supernatural it's other it's mysterious it's something so beyond our own wisdom and our own intelligence, you could define it as a miracle. I like the way some some uh, folks kind of break up the Hebrew and they say, you could say, he's a wonder of a counselor. <coughs> he's a wonder of a counselor. We can't comprehend how wonderful and wise he is. Because we're limited we're humans we only can think and know so many things but but god is not like that but he's a he's this wonderful he's a wonder of a counselor but a counselor is also someone who gives us advice about problems that's that's a very generic uh, definition but that's kind of what the hebrew is someone who gives advice plans how things should be shows the way things should operate that's what a good counselor does right If you're to go and meet with me or or a counselor, uh, uh, someone, and you're having some problems, what are they trying to to tell you? Hey, I'm going to give you some tools. I'm going to give you a path. I'm going to show you a way to maybe deal with the hurts or the pains in your life. (coughs) But God is so much bigger and better and greater than that. Because it's not just about pains in our lives, but it's about how the universe works and how creation works and how people work and why things are the way they are and and God's wisdom and God's plans and God's purposes. He's a wonderful counselor that knows exactly how things operate and function as they should. And I think it's important, as even Jonathan mentioned as he was leading worship, that we can connect God as counselor, but we can also connect that with the word wisdom. Because a counselor should be full of wisdom and saying, this is how to live your life. This is how things should go. This is how things are. Uh, J- Jesus is, is called the, the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians uh, 22. Uh, not 1 Corinthians 22. 1 Corinthians 1. There is no 1 Corinthians uh, 22. Uh, if there is, get rid of that Bible that you have there. Um, there's a misprint. But 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22 For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love that little phrase. It's Paul kind of tongue in cheek saying that even God's greatest wisdom is greater than than, um, we could ever comprehend. That any man's wisdom wouldn't even come close And And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when we think of Jesus as wonderful counselor, we also think of Jesus as the wisdom of God, the incarnated wisdom, that, that in him, in his person, is wisdom personified. That if you want to see the most wise person, the smartest person that has ever lived in flesh in time, in space, it's Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God come down from heaven. Most of us don't don't think of God in those terms as the most intelligent and the most wise and the greatest counselor that has ever been. He's the God who made all things. He's reconciling all things. He's over all things. When when life breaks down, we often don't go to our maker, but we go to everywhere else. Most of you know, I used to have a sermon illustration about our uh, 2004 Kia, but... Rest in peace, 2004 Kia. We've upgraded you to a different Kia, but I still have a 2003 Chevy Tahoe that is just a thorn in my flesh. Just always something breaking off on it, all kinds of signals coming on the dashboard, but I love this car with a holy affection. And I know one thing about that Chevy, I don't know much, I'm not a car guy, but when it breaks down, I don't go to the Toyota dealer, I go to the Chevy dealer, because they have the right parts, right? But how come when our lives break down, we don't go to our maker, the wise counsel, the, no, the one who knows ultimately how we are, why we are, right? And this is, again, this is not a rant against, you know, don't ever see a counselor or a therapist. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that he knows all things. He's wise in every way, and yet we often don't see God as the smartest human that's ever been, <laughs> which is actually an indictment, I think, on, on, on us. So so, how does this Jesus though? How does he how does he counsel us? How does he show that he is this wonderful counselor? How does he provide the wisdom that we need? And and I love. I'm going to give you a couple couple texts here. Uh, if you go to Job um, or Job, however, um, if you go to Job uh, 28, it's actually Job, not Job. A little Bible humor. I know that just went over real big, but uh, Job 28. I love Job. Job and and God are just wrestling back and forth, having these conversations, and they're very honest, and I feel like at times I've had uh, God just kind of whisper the same kind of things to me, like, oh, did you make the universe? Oh, okay, just checking. Um, And uh, in Job 28, verse 12, notice what he says. Man does not know its, or excuse me, uh, but where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it's not found in the land of the living in other words just what we can see what we can taste what we can touch just by looking out we can't find the wisdom that we need the deep says it's not in me and the sea says it's not with me so even the oceans itself says sorry i don't have all the wisdom in the universe verse 15 it cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed at its price we can't buy wisdom "'Gold and glass cannot equal it, "'nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. "'No mention shall be made of a coral or crystal. "'The price of wisdom is above, per, above pearls. "'The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, "'nor can it valued by pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? "'And where is the place of understanding? "'It is hidden from the eyes of all living "'and concealed from the birds of the air. Ab- uh, Abandon and death say, "'We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. "'God understands the way to it, "'and he knows its place.'" For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned por- the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So, so the indictment, the conversation that's going back and forth to understand that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, is that all wisdom is found in him. He knows every drop and every molecule and every hair on your head. He knows how the, the ocean should turn and how the sun should work. And he knows how your in, inside your organs, your, your molecular structure, your cells, your veins, your blood, the way you, your body uh, uh, oxygenates uh, uh, um, uh, 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 through your blood and, and how everything functions as it should. He knows all those different things. He knows what tomorrow will bring. He knows what yesterday brought. He knows what will happen a thousand years from now. Because he's God and he's a wonderful counselor. And wisdom can't be found by looking inward. Sorry, Oprah. And it can't be bought And and it can't be just by looking out and saying, oh, there's wisdom, there's wisdom. Everything that Job just said, it can't be seen in that way, but it's actually in God himself. And it begins by the fear, the reverence, the worship of God, humbling ourselves before him to say, you are the wisest, the smartest, the best counselor that there is. And I think if we're honest this morning, we all know that deep in our bones, don't we? The, the times we've tried to be, have tried to uh, have been our own counselor. Sorry, I got a lot of cold medicine. My brain is a little foggy. Um, the, the times we've tried to, to, to find our own wisdom, the to, times we've tried to do things on our own, and it just seems to crumble and fall apart at every turn rather than going to the one of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Later in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 55, you may be familiar with this text. It's a great um, coffee mug verse, but Isaiah 55 verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That even our best day doesn't comprehend the understanding and the wisdom that God has. And isn't that hard when life is hard and things fall apart and cancer comes and kids get sick or we lose a job or depression or anxiety or whatever it is. And sometimes we, we, in those moments we go, our, our rational brain goes like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet there's something strange and mysterious and beautiful about texts like this to say that could God have a different way? And all of this is part of His plan because His thoughts aren't my thoughts. And His ways aren't my ways. That losing a child at four days Maybe there's a bigger plan and purpose going on that I can't see or comprehend, right? And I think that's just human nature, right? That's just our default mode, isn't it? I mean, to say, well, here's, if I were God, and I would say it would, it would involve uh, no suffering, no pain, and a lot more chicken wings right? If I I were to build out my life, right? I mean, right? Because what is pain and suffering? How does that help me at all? But the funny thing and the ironic thing is that if if all of us sat here and gave our testimonies up here, the things that you have learned and the ways in which God has humbled you and the ways in which God has shaped and molded your character is not when, hey, when I had a million dollars in the bank and everything was going great, that's where I learned the most things. I doubt any of us could come up here and say that with a straight face. But you could get up here and say, it's actually when everything was falling apart that I learned something about God and about myself and about how things are, and it's made me more of a patient person, a compassionate person, a loving person, hopefully by God's grace, right? I mean, we're not a huge church, but man, there's a lot of pain in this room, right? There's We've lost children, miscarriages, anxiety, depression, cancer, sickness, ongoing sickness. I mean, just, this is just this room, right? This isn't multiplied out in our neighborhood, multiplied out in our world. And all of us could say, yeah, there's a lot of pain and suffering that has come. And there's this, this counselor, this wonderful counselor, that, whose thoughts aren't our thoughts, whose ways aren't our ways, and we don't fully comprehend it, but he's a good father. He's an everlasting father, as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. I think it's um, interesting if you study right now there's some kind of spiritual awakenings, revivals happening in the third world. Um, often we don't talk about that. We get upset. You know, how come it's not happening more here in America and churches exploding and things like that? Um, but I, I can tell you this because I think this has everything to do with the wisdom of God and, the, uh, you know, being this wonderful counselor is that the people that are um, kind of awakening to the realities of God's grace and the gospel and the kingdom and third world and, and other places is they're not reading Kant and they're not reading Plato and they're not reading Socrates. They're actually reading the scriptures. They're seeing that there's life there, there's hope there, there's, there's salvation there, that, that God's ways aren't our ways, and people are, that suffer in, in tremendous ways, and, and the poorest of poor are coming to the realities that, that life isn't just about how much stuff we have. Life isn't about money and success and power, but there's something deeper and better going on. And they're finding a wisdom that comes from God revealed to them in the scriptures. There's also a a wisdom in salvation that I think is is humbling for us. Uh, Romans 11. So Paul takes two chapters to kind of describe this, this God who comes to us, this God who saves us by no merit of our own, by justification. And I, and I love this, that this is in the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it gets the end of this long conversation of, of who are God's people and how does this work, and God will show mercy to who will have mercy on. And then he gets to the end of chapter 11, verse 33, and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It takes great humility to humble ourselves before God to say, I don't even fully understand how salvation works. But I know there's a God who comes after us. And that's what the Christian story is all about, isn't it? It's about a wonderful counselor who, who takes on flesh, who moves into the neighborhood, who dwells among us because we needed light, we, we needed wisdom, we needed hope, right? Because everything was dark and chaotic and disordered, that he, he came to us in the flesh to redeem us, to restore us, to make us new, to give us hope in a future. And even Paul can, can, can uh, rejoice and, and go, I, I mean, Paul's a smart guy. I mean, have you read Romans? I mean, half the book, I'm not sure. I don't know, Paul. I mean, even Peter in the in the scriptures, like, Paul's really hard to understand. That guy's on another level. And he gets to the end, and he, he thinks upon all that Christ has done, and he goes, who can understand this counselor, his wisdom, that any of us would be his kids? And so I think it's important for us to remember that this wonderful counselor, this counselor is the smartest and wisest human that's ever lived. And I have a little little mini um, uh, mission in my life. It's to help the, not only the church, but I think the broader church and those outside the church to realize that Jesus is the smartest human that's ever lived. I love this quote. And part of that is inspired by this quote by Dallas Willard. I love this quote. It's, it, I've shared it probably maybe a few years ago. Here's what Dallas Willard says about Jesus. He says, At the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. He could create matter from the energy that he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, eliminate unfruitful trees without saw or axe. Anybody done that? No, you haven't. He only needed a word. Surely he must be amused at what Nobel prizes are awarded for today. Saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice. For anyone but hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice. He is brilliant. He is the smartest man who ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of human history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. Revelation 1 and John 14. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in the human life. That's Dallas Wood from The Divine Conspiracy. Most of us have never thought about Jesus in those terms. But I think that's exactly what Isaiah is saying to his people. This this disoriented world, this dark world, that there's a wisdom that we need. And he's saying, this Messiah who has come, he's the smartest, most intelligent. He knows everything, how it should work, how it should function. That if you just look with your eyes and you look inside, you're not going to see it. But if you go to God, the beginning of wisdom is always a fear of God. He holds it all together by his word, by his... His power, and, and I think it makes total sense <laughs> because we can 't stop talking about this Jesus, even if you 're not a believer, right I mean th- think about his his career trajectory it doesn 't make any sense like if i 'm going to start a movement it 's not going to look anything like the way Jesus started the Christian movement right so so for two thousand years from now, if I want someone to talk about me and I want to be one of the most important historical figures in of all time. I'm not going to be born in a stable, in a backwoods country town of no influence and power. That doesn't seem like the smartest thing, right? No, you're going to go to Rome, and yet Rome, Jesus never went to Rome, never went to the place of power, never went to the the, the smartest of the smartest and the intellect of the intellect, never stepped foot outside his hometown. Some say he only spent about 50 miles in a circular uh, area around Galilee. If, if I'm going to start a, a movement, I, I'm not going to begin my career and die at a young age. If I'm going to have an influence, I better write a book, I better have a platform, I better get on the speaking circuit. And yet Jesus did none of those things. And yet what Jesus is doing for Christmas is he's shaming the wisdom of the world to say we got it all backwards. Because it's not all about power and affluence and money and stuff and things. Because those things can't satisfy the deepest parts of our souls. Right? I mean, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Like, gee, we can't stop talking about the guy. Whether you're a believer or, or not. And it doesn't make any sense because he's so against the way in which the world functions and works. So, the application here is looking for a moment just at the wonderfulness of Jesus because Jesus could be described as our our wondrous counselor he could be described as a wonder of all counselors because remember Jesus is the wisdom of God and if he is the wisdom of God then he is the wonderful wisdom of God we can't comprehend all that he is all that he's done all that he's doing we can't comprehend his love his mercy his kindness the way he loves his enemies and prays for his enemies and blesses his enemies we have no category for that right Cause I don't know about you, but like on Monday, you're not sure the heart is not, hey, can I bless you? Can I pray for you? I know you hate my guts right now, but Jesus died for his enemies and I'm supposed to love my enemies. Can I love you right now? Right? Uh, maybe you're more spiritual, more sanctified than me, but usually it's just like, well, can we, uh, do you want to go outside and buy the flagpole? Well, that's what we did in fifth grade. But you know I've been in a fight since fifth grade, so I don't know how that works now. But, but the, that's the reality, right? It's the, the, the natural default mode of our heart isn't how do I bless, how do I love my enemies the way that, that God has. That's why he's so wonderful and amazing that yet while we are in sin, Jesus dies for us. He's wonderful in every way. When Jesus was doing his public ministry, even his own teaching, people were kind of like, what is this? He gets done teaching the Sermon on the Mount. You remember in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He's sitting with the religious people. And I love this little moment in Matthew 7, verse 28. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So here's all these learned scribes and religious leaders. And Jesus just gets done teaching one of the most amazing uh, sermons that the world has ever heard and says, hey, you want to build your life on the sand or you want to build it on the rock? And everyone's just going like, who, who is this guy? Like, we've heard some rabbinic teaching, but this guy, something else is going on here, right? Because he's the wonderful counselor. We can't hem him in. We can't describe him. He's supernatural. He's a miracle. The, the things that he was able to say and do, some of us on our best days dreamed that we could even live a little bit like Jesus. When the early followers became uh, followers, well, I should say, if you're a follower, I guess you already are a Christian, but if you, uh, the early disciples of Jesus, notice when they gathered together in in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day. By day, there was a sense of awe and wonder that fell upon these people. Why? Because they'd met the wonderful counselor. And they said, there is no God like this. There's no one who's merciful like this, who's as wise as this. There, there's no one who is as kind as this. There's no one as, as hopeful and patient as this. So even the markers of early Christians was a sense of awe and wonder because they followed the wonderful counselor. I know you guys probably know this text because it is Christmas and if you've been around the scriptures or Christmas or the church for any amount of time, Matthew 2, excuse me, verse 9, the wise men encounter this baby Jesus in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is the most redundant line in all of Scripture, and I love it. I don't even know how you rejoice exceedingly with great joy. It's like, it's like we can't even contain it. We're just about to burst forth, right? You ever been in those moments, right? I mean, you guys, a lot of white folks in here, a Coldplay concert, I don't know, what are we doing? Like, we're just so excited, right, about a concert, about the Chiefs, about a a play, about a piece of art, right? There's just a sense of something kind of bubbling up And or it's this moment where like your kids are actually behaving and like we're we're eating and we're just enjoying each other and nobody's sick and snot's not hanging out of their nose and it's like I know the fall is real I know sin is real but there's just like these moments that God kind of pulls back the layer and says here's a little gift for you. That's what's happening there when they encounter this Jesus. Exceedingly, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then they shower him with gifts because that's what you do when you meet the wonderful counselor. Here I am. Only a king deserves the best. Right? How much wonder and awe do you have of Jesus this Christmas? Because I know we get busy. I know we have kids. We have life. We have Struggles and sickness and all kinds of things going on, but it's important for us to not lose the awe and wonder of who this God is. This wonderful counselor, this God we can't hem in, this God we, we, we can't fully describe, this God who's come to us mercy and grace and hope to bring us life. The shepherds in Luke 2, they, they worship with joy when they encountered this Jesus because that's a natural response when you encounter the wonderful counselor. That knows all things. That's holding all things together. Our Maker, our Redeemer. Now, I know um, sometimes when we think about God commanding praise from us or desiring praise or honor from us, or you know, we always think kind of in egotistical ther- terms, because like, I think that's just human nature, right? We wouldn't want anybody like if one of my kids is walking around the house going, "Hey guys, you need to bow down to me." I mean, he's going to get a smack across the face, but it's like we're just going to go like that guy's a monster, right? Like nobody walks around just going, praise me, worship me, right? Uh, I mean, if they do, they have some serious and narcissistic tendencies and other things. But I love the way Jonathan Edwards, years ago, uh, uh, American theologian in the 1800s, talked about praise because he struggled with this just as much. Um, and he, he talks about praise and, and because when we've encountered this wonderful God, when we've encountered this amazing God, what do we've we, we got to get it out somehow, right? We need to praise God. And here's what he says. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So it's not enough for us just to come on a Sunday and go, oh, that's some nice thoughts, pastor. It's not enough for on us to just read our, read our Bibles and go, hey, I, I'm working through my Bible plan. That there's no rejoicing happening, right? There's no praise happening. There's no thank you, God. I can't believe this is even true and this is real and I'm even part of the family, right? That's, what, that's my interpretation of Edwards. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. Did you hear what he just said? God isn't glorified until we actually praise him and thank him for what we've just seen. Like if we just live in our heads and go, oh, that's, that's some nice ideas about this wonderful counselor. He's glorified when, when the expression of it begins to come out in us. And I know a lot of dudes just go like, oh, great. This is like the, the raising the hand thing and the swaying thing. This is why I don't like church. But that's not what this is. It's a spirit of thanksgiving. It's a spirit of thank you, praise you, bless you, oh God. One of the ways we can can think about this, one of the ways we can make kind of a litmus test on our own souls is to say, how much of our prayers are just petition and help me, help me, help me, I need something, and how much of those prayers are praises of thank you and bless you, you are wonderful, you are gracious, you are kind and merciful. And if you're like anything like me, I know that ratio is all out of whack, isn't it? Any amens? Can we get honest? It's always, hey, God, if you could get this done by 3 o'clock on Monday, that'd be much appreciated. But not, you are wonderful, you are merciful, you are loving. I'm just glad to even be alive. I'm glad to even have grace in my life because there was nothing I could have done. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, God, praise you, praise you, praise you. But here's the thing praise changes you, petition does not. Praise will change your life and how you see everything and how you walk with other people and how you are compassionate and gracious to other people when you get the focus off of yourself and you get your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. That's why God commands it because he's the ultimate lover and giver of all joy and all wisdom and all counsel and all strength and all power. It's not because he's egotistical, it's because he's God. If someone in the universe has all joy and love and grace in him, like, we want to go to him, right? And we know that doesn't exist among us. Sorry. we go, go to God. And that's what, what John said in John chapter uh, 17 that the reason the universe exists, the reason why we're here, Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer towards the end of his life he's praying for us, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for future disciples. Notice what he says in John chapter 17 verse 22, the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says one of the most profound things in all of Scripture, that the love of eternity is now being shared to us in Christ. That the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the triune God, I mean, talk about blow your mind, and and I don't have categories and words for it, now wants to be shared with us. That if we are in Christ, he says, this love that the Father and the Son have shared, this is now yours. You can come in and be part of the family. This is why the world exists. This is why everything works together. It's not just about going to, to, to uh, having a job and paying taxes. There's more to it. God is up to something in the world, and that's why He is called the Wonderful Counselor. Because He says, I've invited you in. Come experience my glory. Come and experience my joy, the same joy and love and glory that I've been experiencing from all of eternity. Now you're part of the family. I thought that would get an amen or something. I don't know, maybe it's just turkey. Tryptophan has kicked in mightily. But that's why we call Jesus wonderful counselor. Because he's that great, he's that amazing, he's that love, and he's that wise and has a perfect plan and purpose for us. And, And he shows us the way and a perfect wisdom from us because he is the wisdom of God so I, I don't know where you, you come in uh, this morning, where you come into the Advent season. Maybe you come in a little beat up, tired, weary, somewhere in between. But my, my encouragement for you for the next few weeks is, is not to feel like you have to do something or be something, but to simply sit at, at the realities of this God who has revealed himself as the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. To, to sit on that and to, to meditate on that and to think on that, to let that be your joy. Because parties are coming, and eggnogs coming, and gifts, and all kinds of chaos. But God has entered into the chaos of your life. He's entered into the chaos of this world to bring hope, and light, and salvation to remind us that our lives aren't just about what we do and, and what we experience. I know there's all this pressure. We feel this pressure of like it's the holiday, so we got to make sure we have all these moments and these experiences and get our pictures on Instagram. And you know, if we miss, we don't want to miss out, right? We'll never miss out with God, ever. Because as Willard said a few minutes ago, that there will be a day where we rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity. Believe me, you're not going to miss out, right? I'm not saying don't have parties. Don't do it. Get your party on. Just don't go crazy. Andy said, be, be balanced. But do it in a response to this wonderful counselor. Do it being mindful of the God who came and stooped and dwelled among us, who lived among us, to give us grace and give us hope and give us a future. Do it in the realities that we have this counselor who has all wisdom and the whole universe in his hands and we can go to him, and we can know him, and we can walk with him. That's the good news of, of Christmas. That's the good news of, of the gospel. And, and every uh, week as a, as a church, we have a, a visual representation of that, uh, the bread representing the broken body of Christ and the blood, I should say, the, the cup representing the blood of Christ shed for us, atoning for our, our sins. Every week we're reminded of this grace, of this God who stoops down to us. Who doesn't leave us in the darkness, who doesn't leave us in the chaos. But he comes to us to rescue us, to save us, to change us, to give us a new life and a new hope. And you know what's amazing is that when you become a believer in Christ, the scriptures make very plain that you receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what the name of the Holy Spirit is? It's a counselor. He's a counselor. It's one of his names helper, counselor wonderful counselor. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus living with us. So as you walk, as you live, God goes with you as your counselor, as your wonderful counselor. So if you're a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate the supper with us. The way we take the supper is we break off a piece of the bread, we dip in the cup, there'll be two lines in the front. If you have any kind of allergies, we have some gluten-free, nut-free bread there in the middle. Um, And and if Jesus isn't your wonderful counselor yet, we pray that he would be. And if you want to talk more about that, want to explore that more with us Um, we've all been there Uh, maybe this morning's the the morning you start to doubt your own doubts but please come and talk with us or uh, we have some prayers in our city life you can think on reflect on Um, but what a great time of year to think about what life is about and and how God fits into all of that Um, so with that let us uh, let us pray father we thank you for this time Um, we thank you for advent and I know if if folks here this morning are like me, your, your mind wanders, your, your heart can be full of anxiety and worry and stress and things that need to be done and um, commitments that need to be had. And But God, I pray for these few weeks during Advent that we could, we could just sit as a church, we could, we could marvel at, we could reflect on, we could rejoice in this Jesus who is our wonderful counselor, who's our mighty God, who's our everlasting Father, who's our Prince of Peace. And the millions of implications of that. So even this morning, God, maybe uh, you're asking us as a, as a church to, to come before you and say, God, you, I haven't allowed you to be my counselor. I, I've been my own counselor. I, I've tried to live life in my own strength, in my own ways, in my own wisdom, my own understanding, God, here. I just want to lay that before you. Believing that I'm smarter than you, God, have mercy on us. God, if, if that's where we are this morning, God, may we have the, the, the conviction to lay those things down. Or maybe it's just simply the realities that we just haven't rejoiced in just how wonderful you are, that our our prayers just tend to be about us and about our needs and our wants, but we don't just sit and marinate in the realities of this mysterious, beautiful, gracious, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God that has stooped down to rescue us and bring us into his family. And so our lives are just kind of this moving from one thing to the, the next and not pausing long enough to say, oh, thank you, God, how wonderful and amazing you are. God, have mercy on us as well. May you change our hearts, O God. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, we know we have a God who understands our weakness, who understands our temptation yet without sin, who understands our frailty. frailty. May we come to you to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.